This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. As I mentioned in our last podcast, I wanted to focus the episodes this month, July, on politics. Again, for those of you who are listening, and maybe you didn't listen to the last episode, I don't want to get into partisan politics. I don't think uh, this platform is one where I want to divide even more than we are divided. But I do want to be able to just talk about and maybe educate ourselves um, so that we can be better informed as average citizens. So I want to focus this episode on cognitive dissonance. Um, Now, cognitive dissonance refers to a situation involving conflicting attitudes, beliefs, or behaviors. And this will produce a feeling of mental discomfort, which may lead to an alteration in one of the attitudes, beliefs, or behaviors to reduce the discomfort and to restore balance. So when we're talking about cognitive dissonance, let's give a little bit of history. So it was first investigated back in the 50s, late 50s, I believe, by a man named Leon Festinger. Now, I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce his name. That's how I'm going to pronounce his name. So Leon Festinger um, did a participation study of a cult which believed that the earth was going to be destroyed by a flood. And... So a lot of his followers had given up their homes, they had left jobs, all to work for the cult. Now, those were some of his most ardent followers in the cult. And he wanted to know what happened to them when this flood that was predicted um, for a certain date actually didn't come to pass. So what he found was that fringe members were more inclined to recognize that they had made fools of themselves and kind of put it down to experience. The more committed members, the people who had like sacrificed more and really put their faith in this cult and the leader of the cult, uh, they were more likely to reinterpret the evidence to show that they were right all along, right? So one of the beliefs that many of the more ardent followers came to was that the earth was not destroyed because of the faithfulness of the cult members and what they had done in preparation for this flood, right? So again, they couldn't quite get to that place of I was wrong or I was a fool and more had to kind of do some mental gymnastics to to justify kind of their behaviors and to reinforce their beliefs. So Festinger's cognitive dissonance theory suggests that we have an inner drive to hold all of our attitudes and beliefs in harmony and to avoid disharmony or the dissonance. And so this would be known as cognitive consistency, right? That what I believe, how I act, what my attitudes are, that those things all kind of line up and that they're not conflicting with each other. So when there's an inconsistency between attitudes or behaviors, and it creates this internal discomfort, right? This internal kind of personal conflict or what we are calling dissonance, that something has to change in order to reduce the dissonance. So dissonance can be reduced in one of three ways. So first of all, we can change one or more of the attitudes, behaviors, beliefs, etc. to make the relationship between the two elements a a consonant one. Now, 
so what we could do, right, is kind of what these more of the fringe members had done in the cult. Like they were able to change their their beliefs, right? They no longer believed in the cult. And then they could see uh, why the flood didn't happen. And they had more maybe perspective or or they were more rooted in reality after they were able to change that belief. Now, this is one of the hardest things I think for people to do. And so reducing dissonance in this way is least likely to happen, right? To actually change your belief or to actually see that you are wrong and to acknowledge that to yourself and perhaps to others, that's really difficult to do. Now, Leon Fessinger in his uh, writings, he used smoking as one of the examples. So he would say, you know, if you are a smoker and you enjoy smoking and you're given information that says smoking is not good for your health and let's say that you also value your health right that's going to create some cognitive dissonance because you enjoy smoking and you also enjoy or you prioritize being healthy and on the other hand you learn that smoking is not good for your health and it's linked to lung cancer so one of the things that would be probably the best way to reduce this dissonance is to give up smoking. Now that's also very difficult to do. So one of the other ways that you can reduce the dissonance um, is to acquire new information that outweighs the dissonant beliefs. For example, thinking that smoking causes lung cancer can create dissonance if a person smokes. However, if you come to the inclusion that the information saying that lung cancer and smoking are connected is exaggerated, right? It's overblown. Or that the research hasn't really proved definitely that smoking causes lung cancer. So just, you know, kind of minimizing the information that caused the dissonance allows you to continue justifying your smoking and to kind of go on that way, right? So that's another way to reduce the dissonance is to just get new information that outweighs the information that created the dissonance in the first place. Uh, The other thing is we can reduce the importance of those dissonance beliefs, right? So a person could convince themselves that it's better to quote unquote live for today than to save for tomorrow, right? So in other words, um, the smoker could tell themselves that a short life filled with living the way they want to live, right? Enjoying all of the sensual pleasures is better than living long and not being able to enjoy some of the pleasures of life. And so this is actually also going to reduce the dissonance for that individual and allow them to continue in the behavior that they like. Again, just kind of pointing out there that in dissonance theory, it doesn't say that these modes of dissonance reduction are actually going to work. It's only that the individuals who are kind of in that state of cognitive dissonance are going to take steps to reduce the extent of their dissonance and create some peace or uh, justification, maybe some denial about, about their behavior so that it justifies them being able to do this. Let's talk about some of the studies that Festinger did. So, okay, so there was a study done by Aronson and Mills in 1959. And this is just one study they did. This is, this particular study that I wanted to highlight was done with females only. They also had studies done with males. Um, and, and so it didn't necessarily, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't 
based on genders. I want to point that out. So they wanted to investigate the relationship between dissonance and effort. So female students volunteered to take part in a discussion on the psychology of sex. And in the mild embarrassment condition, participants read aloud to a male experimenter a list of sex-related words like virgin or prostitute. Now, in the severe embarrassment condition, they had to read aloud obscene words and a very explicit sexual passage. So in the control condition, they went straight into the main study. In all conditions, they then heard a very boring discussion about sex in lower animals, right? So that's the control group. And they were asked to rate how interesting they had found the discussion and how interesting they had found the people involved in it. So the results were that participants in the severe embarrassment, right, they had had to put much more on the line. Um, in the, the for, for, So for the females in the severe embarrassment condition, they gave the most positive rating, right, that they had found the discussion interesting and they had found the people involved in it interesting. So the conclusion was that if a voluntary experience, which cost a lot of effort, turns out badly, dissonance is reduced by redefining the, the experience as interesting, right? So it justifies the effort made. So if I'm in that severe embarrassing group and I've had to, let's say, pay the higher price, right? Because I was put into that group. Then one of the ways that I reduce my own dissonance about participating in that is that I, I make the effort worth it, right? And so I'm going to rate the significance of the study highly. I'm going to rate the people, right? So it justifies my participation in it. I think that is something that we need to look at in terms of, right, how much effort we put into something actually will make us kind of be biased towards the outcome because we have to justify the energy and the time and the commitment that it cost us. So one of the things I want to point out is that life is filled with decisions and decisions typically arouse some sort of dissonance, right? Now, on a low level, uh, maybe the dissonance isn't that uncomfortable for us. Some things may be in disharmony. Uh, they may contradict things, but it doesn't arouse a high degree of dissonance, right? So we may be able to justify it, not think much about it, kind of dismiss the dissonance. Now, one of the things that I will explain when I'm talking about in a session maybe about cognitive dissonance is I think that the brain typically likes to simplify things, right? Because if the brain can notice patterns and then simplify or uh, make it kind of this like the brain knows how to do it and we don't necessarily like that thinking part of the brain doesn't necessarily need to be involved, then the brain can be more efficient. It, it frees up more space, right, to focus on new tasks or learn new information, which the brain loves to do, right? So some of these situations, it's not a big deal. I often will use the example of like when I get in my car tonight to go home, from work, you know, for it to go from the, my office to my home, I don't really have to spend a lot of effort or energy thinking about how to do that, right? And thank goodness, right, that the brain works that way. Because if I had to every night remember and like actively focus on getting to my house, that would be, I mean, on the one hand, we look at that and think, 
you know, wow, like I'm moving this vehicle that weighs a lot and I don't really even have to think about the process. But on the other hand, it's like, well, that's good because I think about other things while I'm driving. I can be focused on other things instead of having to remember like what exit to take and how, you know, do I turn left or do I turn right? Like the brain's just kind of streamlined that drive home for me. Now, if on the way home, I mean to stop and deviate from my typical path, right? So maybe I get in the car and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna stop at the car wash on the way home by my house, so I'm gonna actually have to go a different route in order to stop at the car wash, right? And I get in my car and I start doing a routine behavior that I do every day, and all of a sudden I'm pulling into my driveway, right? And I'm like, dang it, I was gonna get a car wash, right? Because my brain just kind of took over and did what it was supposed to. And if I normally don't deviate and stop at the store for something or get a car wash on my way home, then when I'm in that routine, the brain may not recognize or remember, right, that I was supposed to do something different unless I'm actively kind of reminding myself that I'm going to deviate from my normal course. And so that's really, I mean, that's a positive thing, right? It saves us time. It allows the brain to be focused on other things. And maybe I can be uh, listening to a book or a podcast, which I often do in my car, right? And my brain can be picking up and listening and tracking the information that I'm listening to, right? In my car on the way home and not necessarily have to turn that off because I need to remember how to get home. So just kind of some background there. That's a very simplified way um, of how our brain will work, right? And so the brain likes to streamline things. It, it likes to recognize patterns and then be kind of like, oh, I got this. I know how to do this, right? Now, one of the things that can happen then is it doesn't necessarily, um, I think we've done some different podcasts on, in, on this podcast, we've talked about uh, critical thinking skills. We've also talked about emotional intelligence, right? So if the brain is streamlining things, then it doesn't necessarily allow for critical thinking, right? Because it's not necessarily thinking, what do I need to think in this? It's just kind of like, okay, I've got this. I know what to think, right? Instead of how to think. So I think this becomes important when we start looking at, when we start looking at how things go with politics, right? So sometimes, let me, let me back up a minute. So uh, I will say, so I was born and raised in the LDS church. For some of you out there, you would more recognize that as, a Mormon, as the Mormon church. So I was um, born and raised into that church. And one of the things, if you're not that familiar with Mormon practices, the first Sunday of every month is what we call fast and testimony meeting, right? So that's what happens in Mormon church the first Sunday of the month. And what that means is, you know, uh, it, members are supposed to fast and then they're supposed to donate like the proceeds from those meals that they would have had had they not been fasting, right? They donate that um, to the church for, for the church to use in its humanitarian efforts, right? And those may be local, um, those may be on a broad scale. So that's kind of what's supposed to happen. And then in church that Sunday, the first hour of church, which is called sacrament meeting, people can get up, right? So you don't necessarily have a person leading. I mean, you do have a person overseeing that meeting, but you don't necessarily have a designed like structure for that meeting. So after the sacrament, right? Uh, anybody who's attending really that service can get up at the pulpit and they can give a testimony. 
and it's not I mean, sometimes you see in the Mormon church them trying to say, like, this is what needs to be included in a testimony, and this is what you shouldn't include in a testimony. But a lot of times, right, I used to, when I was kind of younger, I would call it like kind of open mic, right? You didn't necessarily know what you were going to get. Now, I will say, as I've gotten older, I think within the LDS church, and not everybody's going to agree with this, all of the LDS people I don't think would even agree with this, but things have become a little bit more correlated, right? Or at least like the messaging is going to sound a lot similar. And there's not going to be uh, much differing opinions that are given maybe from the pulpit, right? But when I was young, I remember I would go to church and I mean, I wasn't super young, right? Because when I was young, I don't think I cared about or listened to what was going on. But starting, you know, maybe young teens, uh, maybe 12, I would start paying attention to what the people were saying. And there were times I remember, you know, a certain guy getting up and bearing his testimony and he would say things and I'd be like, oh, that's super interesting. Like, I don't, I don't know if what he's saying is true, but he, like, he makes a really good point And I really like that. But then another uh, guy who was attending, right, he may get up and kind of give the opposite opinion or it wasn't like, like I wouldn't say it was really high conflict or even causing tension, right? But I, I was aware of certain people who like they believed one thing and somebody else kind of believed a different thing. And nobody, you know, like nobody leading uh, the, the leaders of that church wouldn't get up and say, no, that's wrong, right? But I was one who was kind of like, well, which one is it? And I would, you know, when we would come home from church, oftentimes around the dinner table, we'd kind of discuss what happened at church, what we learned about, different things like that. And, you know, my mom was a school teacher. She didn't necessarily, I think she liked us discussing the ideas. She wasn't one who was telling us like, no, this is what we think, right? So we would have some of those discussions like, well, what about this side? And what about that side? Which I actually think helped me as a child develop those critical thinking skills. And so that was something that I remembered as a child, like happening frequently where I attended church and the people with whom I attended church, right? And I would say as I got older and was kind of attending, I didn't see that so much anymore. And that's where, to me, again, my my perception was that things got a little bit more correlated and everybody kind of believed the same things or were, we were supposed to believe the same things. And so there wasn't necessarily, I would say, as much maybe free thought being shared in those meetings from the pulpit as there was when I remember growing up. Right now, that could also be where I grew up and the mix of people who were attending church with me. I don't know. Um, but to me, that was an example of that cognitive dissonance, right? Where I, I was trying to get my mom to say, like, which of these is right? Because just when I sit there in the pews at church, right, and listen, whoever's talking could convince me. But, you know, I was also a child. And so I was like, which one was true? And my mom didn't ever necessarily say this, this guy was right or this guy was right, right? So it was one of those things where I think I learned to grow up kind of knowing both perspectives of that issue, right? Of whatever, I don't even remember what they would talk about or what the issue was, right? But it kind of forced me into this place of instead of simplifying the issue, I had to kind of look at both angles 
and and probably there aren't even both, right? There's probably more than just the two. But I had to, whenever that issue would come up as even into my teen years, like I said, I don't necessarily remember what it was now. But at the time I would have to like, well, there's this side and there's this side. And I can see, right? Like if I was in debate, I could have argued both perspectives. I wasn't ever in debate. But I think that um, sometimes is more difficult for our brain to do, right? Because it likes to simplify. If there's A and there's B, then the brain decides which is more true or which is more true for me or which makes me feel better, right? And so maybe we decide that B is actually better than A. And so I believe in B and I just go forward, right? And I might even forget about what A perspective was. And and I think there are certain issues that we have to uh, recognize as being complex, right? Number one, I think people are complex. And so when we're talking about people, I don't know that it's really helpful to apply a binary, right? They're either good or they're bad. I don't think that that's going to capture the complexity of human beings. I think with things like politics, Right? We can't talk about the Republicans or the Democrats and totally capture the essence of the thoughts and the platforms in both of those parties. Right, I think we have to slow down and we have to be able to recognize that things are more complex than maybe our brain is comfortable with. Right, That it, when it comes to certain issues, the binary will not work. Right now, for me, driving home, I've decided that this path is typically less traffic and quicker than this path. And that doesn't really matter, right? Like, I can decide that. In fact, we've had some, I wouldn't call them races, but we've had some, like, there's some in which my husband thinks the path that I don't is actually quicker on certain routes to our house than I do, right? And so he'll go his way and I go my way. And usually it's about 50, right? Sometimes I get there before he does. Sometimes he gets there before I do. And so you kind of have to just recognize we have a preference, right? I have a preference to go this way. He has a preference to go that way. Sometimes his is faster. Sometimes mine is faster. Sometimes it depends on who hits, you know, the intersection quicker, but we're actually hitting it about the same time most of the time, right? So I I think that's where we have to recognize that preference also comes into this, right? Just preference is shaped maybe by my personality, uh, maybe by my experience, right? And my background. Uh, Preference also may be shaped by how I grew up. Preference may be shaped by what makes me feel comfortable, right? Whether I'm an introvert or an extrovert, like different things like that are going to also impact preference and preference can't be run down this binary of, right or wrong. So when we're looking at certain things, right, preference always comes into that. And there may be some truths, like I would say the law of gravity, right? That's a truth. That's a truth with a big T. And I may decide that I don't believe in the law of gravity, which is fine. I just probably wouldn't stand next to you when you throw something in the air, right? So there's certain things that are like that, that are big T truth. And then there's a lot of things that I would say are little t truth, where it may be true for you, but it may not be true for another person. And we have to be able to look at that and understand that process of cognitive dissonance and understand what's happening for a person. Maybe that's myself. Maybe that's somebody that I am in a friendship with or they're a family member, right? And so 
their their cognitive dissonance was resolved in a different way than my cognitive dissonance. And when we're talking about different things that we don't see eye to eye on, kind of recognizing maybe how to talk with them and understand what's going on for them so that I don't get so riled up, right? Or I don't say things I regret later. Again, they may or may not be able to do that process with us, right? They may get riled up. They may say things that they should regret but don't regret later because they believe that they are right. So just kind of wrapping up with cognitive dissonance. You know, I think that there, there has been a great deal of research into cognitive dissonance. Now, again, we have to recognize that even with the amount of research that's been done with cognitive dissonance, it's a soft science, right? Because we can't measure that cognitive dissonance, right? We can only measure, like we might be able to measure increase in heart rate or pupil dilation or different things like that, right? But we're talking about an abstract thing that we can't actually touch, we can't actually see. So there's a, there has been a great deal of research into cognitive dissonance, and it's provided some interesting and sometimes unexpected findings. And so it's a theory with very broad applications showing that we aim for consistency between our attitudes and our behaviors, and we may not use very rational methods to achieve it. I think this is some of what's going on currently in the United States in with politics, right? That some of the rationale we have for achieving certain things isn't the best rationale that we have, right? And a lot of it has to do with some cognitive dissonance that's happening. So I also just wanted to briefly talk about and hit on Rachel Maddow. You may not agree with her politics. That's fine. She did do a pretty good, I listened to um, her podcast called Bagman. And it was a podcast diving into the lessons of Spiro Agnew, right? Which happened back in the 70s. He was the vice president under Richard Nixon. And I want to take, now I would say if you want to go into the Spiro Agnew controversy and his resignation, then I would recommend listening to that podcast. It was through NPR, I believe. And again, it was called Bagman. Um, But I think we were looking at just kind of the example of Spiro Agnew. Now, a lot of people understand or depending on your age, right, you may have learned about the impeachment of President Richard Nixon um, in your history classes or different things like that. I'm old enough, like we were talking about that impeachment President Nixon's impeachment in some of my history classes. But I don't think that my kids learned about that. Like, I think that's, I I think oftentimes in school, right, we're learning about more current history than we are historical history, which I think sometimes, I mean, I understand maybe as a teacher, there's only so much you can cover in a school year. But I also think oftentimes current history has a larger story that fits into the things that we aren't studying or teaching. So I, I, one of the things that's always been interesting to me, and, and she hit on this um, a little bit in the Bagman podcast series, but talking about one of the things that I was interested in, right? Because so, so let's back up a minute and just talk about Spiro Agnew. I mentioned he was Richard Nixon's vice president. He was a very likable person prior to him becoming um, the vice president. A lot of people didn't know him. He was actually the governor in Massachusetts. And so when Richard Nixon picked him to be his vice president, a lot of the nation 
what was not familiar with Spiro Agnew, but he had a very charismatic personality. He quickly, um, he was much more, I would say like social or much more charismatic than Richard Nixon was. And so a lot of people really loved the vice president. And it's an interesting thing how history happens, right? So when they started investigating, when the Justice Department and the FBI started looking into Richard Nixon and recognizing what he was doing, one of the things they came upon was the behavior of Spiro Agnew, right? And he was what they term like he was guilty of grafting, right? So grafting in a political sense means that he would use his authority or he used his position for personal financial gains. And what they found is this actually went back to when he was governor of Massachusetts as well, but he brought that behavior with him on a much larger stage when he became the vice president. Um, Now, actually what they like what he was convicted for was tax evasion, which he also wasn't paying his taxes on some of his financial increasing, like some of his financial gains, let me say that. He wasn't paying taxes on. And so that's actually what they got him on in the plea agreement. They agreed to drop the other charges and to just go forward with tax evasion. And so that's what he he did not plead guilty to. He pled no contest to that charge and he resigned the vice presidency. Now, prior to him doing that, um, he would go on TV and he would give reports and he would talk about how the press was out to get him and that the press was not being fair and that they were convicting him, convicting him and that he was innocent of what they were saying and that he would prove that he was innocent of what they're saying. So on the public stage, he very much was trying to plead his case to the people. He had a lot of supporters. Um, a lot of them were Republican women who Uh, saw him as kind of being victimized by the press and victimized by people on the other side, right? And so it looked like he was going to, when Nixon was impeached and, and put out of office, it looked like Spiro Agnew was kind of putting himself up to take over the presidency and to do so with public approval, or at least on his side, right, the public approval. Now, the Justice Department, who was looking into Andrew Agnew's dealings, was really concerned, right, about him uh, succeeding Nixon into the office of presidency, knowing that he would continue his behaviors and that it wasn't okay to take the president out who had been violating laws and then allow the criminal under him to then take over the presidency, right? So they knew that that would be a bad thing for the nation. And so they also knew that before they could remove Nixon from office, they had to remove Agnew from office. And Agnew knew that this is what they were trying to accomplish. And so he he was putting a lot of pressure on the US attorney in charge of the case to halt the investigation. He was, you know, pleading his case, like I said, on the public stage to the public, kind of saying that um, what he was being accused of uh, was inaccurate and that he hadn't done what they were saying that he had done. So let me just talk about, I looked up um, on the New York Times back in 1973, just looked up some of the articles covering this because I really was interested in like, how did his supporters um, handle that, right? Because they they were believing that 
what he said was true, that he was being attacked unfairly and unjustly and that he hadn't done these things. Now, one of the things that happened after he confessed somewhat or at least pled no contest, right, is that a 40-page summary of the evidence against, against Mr. Agnew was submitted to the court and it was made public. So his supporters could also read the, the evidence that they had against him. It detailed how from his time as Baltimore County Executive to his years as Vice President, Spiro Agnew had taken kickbacks and payments from people who wanted government business. And now Spiro Agnew had said that he was a poor man and he needed the cash to meet his social and political obligations, right? So he was able to, I'm, I'm sure at some point he knew that that behavior was not okay, right? That it was illegal, that it was immoral. And again, for him to resolve that cognitive dissonance, he had to come up with a justification for doing so. And so again, it was that like, I'm a poor person and in order to play on this stage, I need money. And so if this is how I get that cash, then it can be justified because I'm good in this position, right? Or my skills are needed and I do other good things with the cash and with my political authority. So the bulk of the evidence and the testimony uh, was from four witnesses who were fairly close to him, which was also difficult. And that's kind of where he started to recognize that he had to do something to preserve himself. Um, and so he was discredited um, with all but his most ardent, partisan supporters, right? So uh, in later years, Mr. Agnew um, indicated go quietly or else was kind of the pressure that he got from the White House. And that had forced him, the White House had forced him into resigning and allowing the summary to be made public. He did not want that summary to be made public. Um, let's see, in 1980, it, he did a television interview and he said, quote, I wouldn't recommend anyone go into politics today, any young person, because it's just people. The expectation of people from people in public office is just so high that no ordinary man can ever perform to suit them. Now the interview then asked if honesty could not legitimately be expected. And Agnew's reply was, yes, but honesty is a different thing to different people. Right, so again, this fits into what where we started out with uh, cognitive dissonance, right? You can see that part of him maybe reconciling or justifying to himself what he had done and was, right, that the expectation from the people of those in public office is just so high, it's completely unrealistic, right? They want us to be perfect. They want us to be, you know, superheroes basically. And that that's just unattainable and it's an unrealistic expectation. Now the interviewer did a good job and kind of brought him down a little bit and was like, I think people are asking for honesty, right? Is that too much to ask for? Like anybody, any human being, right? Imperfect as we are can be honest. And so again, he said, yes, but honesty is a different thing to different people. Well, I think what he didn't say is honesty to me is something different than it might be to you. So he was, um, let's see, in his later years after he left the vice presidency, he, he became known what he called himself as an uh, international businessman. And he uh, was a resident of Rancho Mirage, California. Now, he did attend. He, After that, he rarely made public appearances. But in 1994, he did attend President Nixon's funeral. And 
he said that he had put aside the anger that had followed his resignation. This was his quote. He said, I decided after 20 years of resentment to put it all aside. The last time I talked to him, meaning President Nixon, was the day I resigned. He tried to call me after that several times, but I didn't take the calls because at the time I felt totally abandoned, but that's all past. So again, it sounds to me just some of the reading that I've done in preparing for this, even listening to the Bagman podcast episodes, that he still viewed himself as kind of a victim in this and never fully took accountability for what he did and why that was wrong and why he should have been removed from office. Now, he did about three years. His final sentence, right, was three years probation. So he actually never went to prison or served any time. And he had to pay a fine of $10,000. Now, this New York Times article that I was talking about from 1973 says that there's no way, this is a quote, there is no way to anticipate clearly what is in Mr. Agnew's future, right? So this is back in 1973. We, We do now know because he died in 1997, I believe. But it says there's no way to anticipate clearly what is in Mr. Agnew's future, how he will approach the nation or the nation regard him or how the nation will regard him. The United States has never before had a man of his stature found guilty of common crimes and driven from the vice presidency. After his resignation, most political figures reacted with expressions of compassion for Mr. Agnew and concern for the national good. But there were also expressions of resentment from some of his former supporters, especially those who had fully believed in his declarations of innocence and cheered his defiance. There was also the view that Mr. Agnew had been shown to be no more than a common thief whose crime was magnified by the offices he debased and the public trust he violated. For those who held that view, the deal Mr. Agnew struck to keep himself out of jail was a distortion of justice, since ordinary citizens are imprisoned for far less. So again, I think some of some of what happened, right, with the public regard, most of, I, I think in Bagman, I think Rachel Maddow does kind of refer to that eventually, not when he resigned, right, but eventually a lot of his supporters were able to see the lies that he had manifest as truth to his supporters. But part of what allowed them to do that, right, is if they read the 40-page uh, document that was released to the public, Um, a summary of all of the charges against him and the investigation that led to knowing what what these charges should be. Um, And then also kind of looking and and I think seeing him as like, wait a minute, you had privileges that me as an average American citizen wouldn't have. Had I done these things, right? Had I evaded taxes? Had I uh, taken bribes? and you know exploited other people for my own personal financial gain then i would not be able to not go to prison for that right like i i would be held to a different bar than he would have been and i think that also helped with their cognitive dissonance that he had taken advantage of right and and able to see maybe that he wasn't the person that they believed he wasn't the person that they needed and wanted him to be. And I think that's some of the, like, we have to look at how we get into that place of needing or wanting our leaders to be somebody that we can't really then critically think about them and see them for who they are, right? Or for what they're actually doing. We have to be able to maybe want our leaders to be a certain thing for us, but we have to look at and understand why 
why do we need them to be that to the point that I might not be able to actually see um, some behaviors or some rhetoric that I disagree with. And again, I think that goes back to cognitive dissonance and our wanting to live in harmony, our wanting for maybe our leaders or who we perceive as my guy, right, or my leader to be who I am and to have the same ideals, to have the same morals that I would want him to have. And we have have to be able to recognize when that's not being shown. Now, next week, um, the interview, I'm really excited for uh, my guest next week. He is a author um, and we're gonna talk about his book. Um, I read his book, it came out in May of this year. And I was reached out to him not knowing if he'd, if he'd do podcasts, right? Or if he'd come on my show. Um, and he agreed to come. So I'm going to be recording with him. And then that podcast will release in a week. And I'm really excited for that. So uh, stay tuned. And I think we're going to do some good coverage of maybe politics currently and how we can actually not be as divisive as we currently are. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story till it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.